Okay, so we have been doing what? Bruchko. 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 And tell me a little bit about what you remember about chapters one through nine. Give me anything He's you remember. He's a missionary. He's a missionary. Okay, he was a missionary and he didn't have a good family life. And what was that? What was wrong with it? His parents didn't really care. Okay, well, I mean, people can be Christians and be in the Lutheran church, but the people he knew weren't really, right? Because they, they have the same Bible, but many other churches, and in, you'll find this with lots of denominations, which are different, um, different approaches to Christianity, I'll call them. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people just don't teach. They don't teach the Bible. And if you teach the Bible, and if you have a true relationship with God, it doesn't really matter where you are. Although oftentimes, just thinking, well, I can do it without any church at all, is very difficult, and it's very hard, and oftentimes people fail because they have no structure in their life, right? So you need structure. Oftentimes people do much better with a church with some sort of structure. We have different structure here than another church would have. But anything that leads you to the Lord constantly and teaches you and has purpose behind that is a good thing. Okay? So we find here in this book, though he was raised Lutheran, right? And then he had some friends that were more Pentecostal type where they had a little bit of a freer approach, okay? They were ones that um, had maybe more life than he was used to, more crazy things that they did, right? He went to a couple different churches with a couple different friends, and he also went to a Roman Catholic church, right? So different approaches, but yet it doesn't change his approach to God, right? But it helps him understand that there are different approaches. And when he gets out to the jungle... There is no Baptist church, right? There's no Catholic church. There's nothing there. He's it. He is the representative of Christ. And truthfully, we're going to get into the mode alone people tonight, right? He's been kind of getting everywhere but, right? Up till now, up through chapter 9, he's gone every place. But he hasn't gotten to the mode alone people. So, he was out with another tribe, and what was that other tribe's name? The Yukos. Okay? And everybody thought that the Yukos were the Modalone people. Right? But that wasn't, wasn't true because what happened with the Modalones, when people got near the Modalones in the Modalone territory, nobody ever got close enough and they just got shot and they were killed. Or shot with arrows and they ran away. So either way, the common denominator was shot with arrows, right? And that's the welcome that people got from Modalones is stay away from our land. Okay? Get away from us. Now, how would you like to be the guy that was picked to go do that, right? 
God says, I got a special job for you. Now think about this. Do you think that Bruce would have been ready if day one, he's, God said, I'm going to take you to the mobile home people. You're going to suffer pain and hurt. You're going to be shot at with arrows. You're going to, they're going to penetrate. You're going to lay on the ground for weeks and months. You're going to be stuck in the jungle. You're going to be kicked by mules. You think he would have said, sign me up? No. Probably not, right? But over time, there's growth that happens with Bruce. He changes, and we, we see that happen in the book. So last week, you met a guy named Lucio. Oh, yeah, the crazy one. And why was he crazy? What happened with him? Um, he tried to kill him. He tried to drown him, right? And why? Because. He was kind of like... He was a socialist communist, okay? Essentially, it was much more, he, he said, well, I don't follow anything, sort of, but in the end, really, he followed one, one idealism, and that idealism was totally against what Bruce said, except <coughs> he turned, right? <coughs> In the end, he ended up asking about Bruce. So why do you think God had Bruce end up at that college and that place living with that guy? To learn that people can change. That was one thing, right? People can change. And how do you think Bruce felt living in the same room with a guy that really doesn't like you. Does that make you comfortable? Would you like that? Mm. Wouldn't you want a barrier between you and this guy, right? Especially after he tries to drown you and you look at him and you think, you just might hate me. You might have been okay if you drowned me, right? You, you kind of just wanted to do that to me. So it is an interesting thought what God has been preparing Bruce for. He is continually working and the circumstances as you read them in the book, it's like random. He's in this town, he's in that city, he's in that co college, he's up, he goes back here, he goes over there and yet everything is done for a purpose. And that's what we find with God. Everything is done for a purpose. So he finally gets out to the Yuko tribe and the Yuko tribe he asks each one because he knows he wants to go to the Motolone people. He has now, that's been put on his heart. And he says, I need to meet the Motolones. This, these are the people that I need to get to. So you take me there. Well, I'm not taking you there. And he asks, and he asks, and he asks. And pretty soon they say, well, we're not gonna take you there. We'll take you to this other village. And they'll take you there. So they get over there and take him to another Yuko village. And the Yuko village says, after a while, well, we don't really think we should take you there, but we know another village. They'll probably take you there. 
and so he stays there for a while. What is happening to him? Don't you think God can get him right to the Motolone people? If he wanted to. So what's happening? Learning. What's he learning? What is different about every Yuko tribe he goes to? Diff a little different culture, and they have a different Leader. language. They have a different dialect. Everyone he goes to is a little different, and a little different, and a little different. And he's actually getting closer to these Monolone people each time. Closer and closer. It's not that he's learning the language. He's learning something else, okay, a different language. But what's happening is he's developing connections between language and language and different things. Because when he goes to the Monolone people, he doesn't know a single word. Right? He doesn't know a single word. Nothing he can tell them. The only thing he can tell them is show them himself. And he can speak in Latin, Spanish, and Yuko of 20 different dialects by the time he's done, okay? But he doesn't speak what the Monolone people speak. Because the Monolone people don't necessarily trade. They don't necessarily, they're not friendly to anybody, right? Even the Yukos are afraid of them. And the Yukos are afraid of them because they're at war. Every time they get anywhere near, they're at war. But he finally meets a young man. And that young man gives him a chance. And how does he get that chance? He says, I'll take you. He agrees to take him because Bruce... Offers him what? A zipper. <laughs> he had a zipper that he kept off a pair of pants or something, and he'd thrown it in his backpack, and all it was was a zipper. It wasn't connected to anything. But it was shiny. And it was different. And the Yuko people loved these things that were different than anybody else had. And so this young man said, well, I don't know if I'll take you. Just give me that. I'll give this to you if you take me. And he tries to grab at it, and he says, nope, you're going to take me to the Motolone people. And so finally he agrees. And off they set on this journey. And it's a fantastic, amazing type journey. We're going to pick up. Uh, eventually here, we're going to go to the book. But first, as they take off, they go on a six-day walk. Six days. They do not eat all day long. The, the Yuko people are walking the trails. And you will find that trail walking is a big deal to these native tribes. It will become a big part of the book and a part of his understanding of these people. And he will use that in time to come. But here he is, when they're going on a trail walk, they are intense and focused. So these Yuko people get up before light, early, early in the morning, and they just start walking the trail. He brings a group of these Yukos with him, 
He doesn't know where to go. And they're walking these little trails, and they walk this trail, and they walk that trail, and they walk this trail, and pretty soon the trails disappear. There's no real trail, but they still know where to go. Now, how many of you could walk for an entire day in woods and know where you're going? Walk for 12 hours straight. If somebody sets you out in the woods, and it all looked the same for 12 hours. Probably not me, okay? And I spent lots of my life in the woods, but I would have a great struggle knowing that. But these Yuko people knew. They walk for one day, they finally drop, and Bruce drops. Soon as they've stopped, they drop and they sleep. They eat a little bit of something on the trail, they drop and they sleep. And they get back up again before dark a little earlier the next morning, and a little earlier the next morning, and a little earlier the next morning, and they walk for hours and hours and hours until it's dark. How do they know what time they're waking up? <laughs> Inside. If you never train yourself with an alarm clock if you need it, and you get up by constantly getting up every day and doing the but very same thing. But how do they get up earlier? <clears throat> they just know. I don't know. Probably somebody is, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Some people have internal clocks. I know a lot of people that actually have internal clocks. Okay, And they run their life by it and they know about where they are. And if they really just are in the, mo in the mode, boom, things happen at the same time. Okay, So these people are very connected with their environment. They know exactly what it is and probably at a certain time, there are certain noises overnight that they've learned to ignore and sleep right through. And then there are other noises that happen in the morning. When do the birds start singing around our houses? Is it at light or is it before? Light. Before. If you really listen carefully, it's not super long before, but they might sing. You can hear it when you're camping. 20 minutes or half an hour. But if you camped every day of your life, yeah. You'd know exactly what it was, right? Because they live right out in it, right? We get one day here and another day there. They live in it every day. That's just what they know, okay? Their life is simpler in a lot of ways. They just have their environment, and they have simple things. That's why a zipper is like a big deal, because it's different, okay? So they walk and walk and walk each day, a little earlier, a little earlier, and they say very few words all day long. And in the last day and a half, two days, no talking all day. Now this is getting more and more and more and more intense. <clears throat> What's happening is they've now crossed further and further and further, nearer and nearer their enemy, right? They're not going to say a word because they know what happens. They're mindful and watchful. They're listening as they walk. They're listening for any movement anywhere. Okay? And they are very keen at understanding because it is their life. They're either going to live or they're going to die. And they know if they go up to a warring tribe, they have, that's it. They can get shot. That's it. And so they're listening and they will not say a word. They're not. One time, Bruce said, hey, look at that parrot up there. Boom. Covered his mouth. Do not say a word. 
We're not talking. <laughs> We're taking you to the enemy and dropping you off. So you say nothing. And so no words, no words, no words. What's happening with this? Now, think about this. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians before we read out of the book here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, chapter number 9. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse number twenty-five. Chapter nine, verse twenty-five. It is in the New Testament. Getting nervous, are you? <laughs> Can't find it. She can read it in your place if you want. <laughs> no, I I know, but. Oh, I found it. Okay. Nine twenty-five. Nice and slow. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. You know what that means? What word? Any of it. <laughs> First of all, what? They try to get... Something that they think is good, but can not like earthly things. Okay. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the crowns first. Where do the crowns come from? Heaven. From what? Um, in this case, yes, from their talents, but there are two kinds of crowns he's talking about, right? One is a corruptible. Corruptible. Okay. So like earthly crowns and heaven. Okay, earthly crowns and heavenly crowns, or something that lasts forever versus something that is short-lived. So think back in Paul's time, okay, the Romans are in charge, and he lives in a culture that, even though he's in Rome, was very much influenced by the Greek culture. What are the Greeks famous for? Culture everywhere. Culture everywhere, yes. They are famous for the Olympics. Oh, yes. Okay? And they used to get, not gold medals, they used to run races and fight in their uh, different sports and different things. They worked super hard to be one of the best athletes. And they did it for a crown. Whoa. What kind of crown did they get? All of Yep, a laurel crown is what they call it. Oh, basically. like the ones that you guys got at the one youth retreat? Yep, they're just like little leaves yeah. and twigs. <laughs> so they fought their whole life and they, it says they gained mastery. If you are a master in something, how good are you? Like, You're the best, right? You have fought your whole life to learn it, to do great at it, to be the best. And they strive for it. Is it easy to become a master? No. Nope. The idea is you fight and you work at it and you 
continue to exercise, right? So if you're fighting to become a runner, what do you have to do? Run. If you're gonna be the best runner, you better run, and you better run hard, and you better run harder and longer and further than anybody else. If you're gonna win, it's the little leaves that go on your head, okay? And he said, they're fighting for that, but we're fighting for something better. We're fighting for a heavenly crown, not an incorruptible crown. They fight for this one where the leaves dry up and wither away and they're all gone. In a few days, they're gone. This sad, right? They spent their whole life <laughs> getting ready. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of fame with that, but I don't know that there's like a big list of Olympians that the Greeks, nobody knows their names. They just knew they had the, right? Had the crown, they had the Olympics, and that they did it every year. They probably were famous for a little while. Oh, he's the best runner, he's the best fighter, he's the best. Um, spear thrower, whatever, okay? They did those things to fight for that. What you need to understand is God has put us here to fight for something. And I've said to you many times, you each have a purpose, God has a plan for you, God has a people that you are to connect with. Now, it may not be people that shoot arrows at you, okay? It may be the people right in his Shelby. That might be your people that he wants you to connect with and you to fight for. But he says, you fight for something bigger, something that lasts longer. It's incorruptible. It's a heavenly crown that you fight for. So work hard at it. Oftentimes, it takes physical work. So here is Bruce. He's 19 years old, okay, by himself with Yuko Indians when he first started. He's 19 years old. I'm sure time has passed. But he's very young, just a few years older than any of you, okay? He's out on his own with, with no one to take care of him, no one to pay for anything, no place to go when he gets tired or sick or hungry. He is going with a bunch of people who kind of like him, but probably not mostly, who want his zipper, okay? <laughs> and they're taking him into hit their enemy territory. <coughs> for six days, they almost don't speak. And for the last two, no words. <clears throat> and they keep going and going and going and taking him and taking him and taking him all the way to the end. And God says, you will have to fight like that. And he said, every day he dropped dead. Every night when he walked for 12 or 13 or 14 hours straight and then just dropped dead. And they got him up the next morning early and go. Sometimes you have those types of things in your life where you think you can hardly keep up. That may be part of what God is preparing you for. God is using this. He is healthy, and he knows what it takes. And he's lived through this now. And so he is going to have to use this to save his life in time to come. Because there won't be Yuko Indians to help him. Alright? So, you fight, you struggle... You fight for mastery, 
okay? You do it to obtain mastery in what you do. And if what you do is bring uh, modal-owned people to God, then you fight all the ways you can to get there. If that's God's mission for you, you fight. Even if you have to walk into the jaws of death. And here we go. Page number 70. You get discipline. Page number 70. We're going to pick up. Let me find my spot here. Oh. Third paragraph down starts with this was what I had come to the jungle for. This was what I had come to the jungle for. I soon was going to see my first monologue. Suddenly, all of the Yukos stopped, raised their heads as if to sniff the wind. They stood like statues. I hadn't heard a sound, but I stood still too, listening to my breath come hard and loud. Too loud, I thought. I heard nothing else. Then, as if in one motion, all the Yukos broke into a run back the way we had come. I stood stunned for a moment, then clumsily ran after them, wondering what I was running for. I ran straight into some vines, tripped and fell flat on my face, scrambled up, got tangled in the vines again, and then a searing pain bit into my thigh, and my whole body went limp. I fell. Everything seemed to move slowly, even my huge gulping breaths. I looked down at my thigh. A long shaft was sticking out of it with a neat little punch hole where the arrow had gone in. The hole was bright red from the blood, my blood, oozing out and down my leg. I couldn't take my eyes off the arrow. It seemed unreal. It had to be sticking out from someone else's leg, but it wasn't. Then I looked up, and my heart almost stopped. I was encircled by dark-skinned, naked men with huge bows drawn taut. Nine little dots of arrowheads pointed right at me. I forgot all about my leg. Don't shoot! Don't! I said in Yuko, pleading with my eyes. Their eyes, like little black chunks of coal, made no response. Their arms did not relax at their bows. Oh, please, I said in Spanish. I come as a friend. Friend, I said in Latin. Without taking their eyes off me, they removed the arrows from their bows. One of the men walked over to me. I cowered. He reached down to my leg and grasped the arrow by the shaft, putting his foot on my thigh and yanked out the arrow. I saw little red dancing stars. I couldn't breathe. I looked down at my leg and saw a bit of my muscle trailing in the blood from where the arrow had been pulled. Every second the pain seemed to be more than I could stand, and then, unbelievably, it got worse. The man with the arrow took the arrow and poked me in the back. I tried to ignore him. I wanted only to lie there and die. He insisted. He wanted me to stand. I did. Then he poked me in the back, and I stumbled ahead. The other men formed a file, and we began to walk back into Motolone territory. 
The march lasted three hours. My leg pained beyond description, but every time I slowed down, I felt the arrow point in my back. We went up a long, steep hill, and I knew I couldn't go much further before I fainted. A dark throb in the corner of my eyes threatened to take over my whole field of vision. My leg felt as though it had been cut almost in half. Finally, we broke into sunlight at the top of the hill, and I saw a huge brown mound in the middle of a rough clearing. It looked like a beehive planted unnaturally on the ground. It stood about 40 feet high, and there were dark rectangular holes at ground level. We went straight to it and entered one of the dark holes, stooping to get in. It was too dark to see at first. I heard a little woman's screams, scuffling, and the cries of children. Gradually, my, guy, my eyes got used to the dim light. I was shoved down onto a little mat. So, there he is. Shot with an arrow in his leg. The guy comes and rips the arrow out of his leg. Right? And the muscle had been torn, and so it was just running out of his leg in the bloodstream. They did nothing to help him. Just poked him in the arrow and said, go. Made him walk for the next three hours. Anybody ever taken a three-hour walk? Okay. Anybody ever had a hurt leg taking a three-hour walk? <laughs> Probably not. Nobody's been shot with an arrow before, I'm guessing, okay? <laughs> All right. If you got shot with an arrow, where would you first go? I wouldn't go anywhere. I would just cry. You'd cry, okay? <laughs> and then someone, after you fainted, would take you to the hospital, right? Yeah. Because they would help you out. He lays on this mat for days. They will not let him get up. And he starts to go delirious. They don't feed him couple, three days at least. Now remember, he's just finished a six-day march. They ate a little at night, fell asleep. Woke up, marched again, ate a little at night, fell asleep. Again, he's getting discipline and God is giving him <coughs> what he needs to endure. He's actually becoming a little hardened. His body is becoming hardened and used to some of this jungle life. But he's about to undergo some pretty major stuff. Pretty nasty stuff. When he does it, he is there. And finally, after some time, some little, comes, little kid comes up. He's half delirious. He's gone in and out of consciousness for many hours, if not days. And a kid comes up. And he pulls open this leaf, and on it lay a bunch of big grubs, size of hot dogs. You want it, right? Big, squirmy grubs. Okay? You want this. And what he is thinking in his mind is if I don't eat something, they may not feed me anything, and I might die. None of us have probably ever experienced hunger enough to get to the point where we will eat anything. Someone once told me he went into military training 
and there was all these tough military guys. They dropped them off, and they did a two-week stint. I believe it was up in Alaska. Not a lot of different foods you can eat, but they had two weeks. They had to get to a point somewhere else where they were going to be picked up, and they basically were given a knife and a little piece of wire. Said, there it is. They taught them what they could eat if they could find it. Every guy went out there and said, I'm not eating any bugs. I'm not eating any bugs. And tough guys as they were, he said, after about a week, you eat anything that moved. Your mind changes about what is okay and not okay. Right? So he figures, if I'm going to survive, the little kid takes that nice big hot dog of a worm as it's wriggling, bites the head, spits it off, okay, shoves the rest of the thing and chews it. And so, <laughs> and so Bruce figures this is his shot. He takes one, and he bites the head off, tears the head off and spits it away, and he says the guts are just coming out of the thing. And he says, I figure I can't eat it if I don't eat it whole. So he shoved the whole thing into his mouth, and he ate three or four of them right in a row. Same thing. And then his stomach went, <laughs> inside, right? Until he puked them all up. Now, remember, his body's not used to any of this. His body is going to go through some nasty things. And the human body can undergo a lot of things. But here it is. What did he need at that time? He needed food, right? Did God provide food? Was it a hamburger from Wendy's? It was a hot dog. <laughs> it was like a hot dog, sort of. <laughs> a living, breathing hot dog, <laughs> Many times, God provides things in our life, and it is not always just what we want. Especially when we get along the way, down the trail of following what God has to say. Now here he is, and he sits there, and he is trying to recover. He has no medical attention. He has no medicine. He has nothing to even cover the wound. Excuse me. And he decides that, well, his body decides for him because he starts to get feverish. His body is really convulsing and doing things because it's just... It doesn't want to make it from what's happening to him, right? He's really, really struggling, this body. And so, he starts to get diarrhea time after time after time. And as soon as he starts to try to crawl up from the mat that he's been shoved down to, they stop him. And then he has diarrhea everywhere. And so after... A little bit, he gets enough communication with the women that are around doing the things that they're doing in their big round house where they help him outside where they all go to the bathroom, right outside. So they help him, he goes to the bathroom, bring him back to the mat, throw him back down. They do it for a couple more days. He's sick 
What happens if you have diarrhea for too long? Get dehydrated, right? He's got no water. He ate some slugs, okay? That's it. That's what he survived on. But he knew, even in the midst of that, all of a sudden, he had an urge. I've got to go back. He fought with it a bit because he just got there. He finally made it inside the Motalone home. But what was God really telling him to do? All right. So how do you know if you're in a situation like that, which I guess you probably won't be sitting there with an arrow that's just been pulled out of your leg, sitting in a, a tribal home somewhere. But if you're in a situation, how do you know when God is leading you and how do you know when God isn't leading you? Right now he's thinking God's got a, God wants me not to stay here. Wasn't it the whole point of him getting there? That's my question is how... Do you know? Any ideas? This is hard. Most adults don't know how to know this at all. And it's difficult to understand. How do you know God really wants you to do the next thing? You know, it's God leading and not you're delirious. Or somebody put it in your head. Or you've always just wanted to do this. And you now have been shot by an arrow. And I don't want to be here anymore. How do you know that's God? Go to Romans chapter 12. Just back a little bit. In Romans chapter 12. Verse number 2, Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but, he ye, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what, that, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how do you prove what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is? What happens to you? Transformed. You're transformed, okay? You're transformed, right? How do you know what God wants to do? God's will, the perfect, good, acceptable will of God, how do you know? You know because you are transformed. All right. Great. How do you get transformed? Who, who transforms your mind? What's transforming me? The change. The change. Who changes your mind? God. God, specifically. Jesus. No. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's good. You had three guesses and you got it. <laughs> So the Holy Spirit is He who guides you. Now, last time He left 
the Yuko people, what happened to them? Remember he got on the mule. He rode along out into the jungle. The mule kicked him off. So he got the mule back, got back on there. Went back to start again. Mule came, kicked him off, whacked him in the head. Split his lip open. If you have adversity along the way, does that mean that God is showing you something different? Maybe. Maybe. Many times... When God has a plan for you and you don't know what it is, He wants you to move ahead and He will help steer. Very wise old lady once, when I asked her about making choices in my life, she told me, How do you steer on a bicycle? You're missing a part. You're going like this with your hands. So, I get on my bicycle. Right on. Wow. What am I missing? Your feet. Your paddle. My feet. <laughs> I can do this all day long. <laughs> and I will get nowhere. Because I'm missing moving forward. You cannot steer on a bicycle until you are paddling. It is true oftentimes with God. He wants you to take a step of faith and listen. Now lots of times we say, I got a good idea. And pedal and steer, and every once in a while, a mule kicks you in the head, and you say, oh, maybe I wasn't supposed to go this way. Right? Sometimes, by the way, that's not the first time a donkey has ever stopped someone from making a poor choice. Oh my gosh, really? Yes. And he talked to him, he was like... Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did, right? So, the idea is this that you are moving, but you are listening carefully. God will, and oftentimes, and there's no magical thing to say, but oftentimes I pray for God to open the doors he wants me to go through and shut clearly the ones I don't. Because I have found that sometimes my own pride gets in the way of making a good decision. I'm going to do this way. I won't be told what to do. But it's very subtle. So learning to listen to God's will takes transforming in your mind. And the transforming, coming from the Holy Spirit, says learn to listen. What did the Yuko tribe do? They get closer and closer to danger. Say nothing, listen. Right? And here's Bruce. There's a parent. You know, he's out there because he doesn't know. He has no idea 
but they have learned to train their senses to listen to the smallest thing. And sometimes God's direction is a small whisper in your life. An urge inside. So how do you know if the urge is right? Well, you can't steer till you get on the bicycle. Being aware and knowing that the urge does not do something totally against God's word, okay? Because he's giving us all standards. And if you say, well... I tried uh, stealing everything because I just wanted to see if that was God's will or not. Well, you already know that God's word says don't do that, right? So God's not going to go against his own word, but in a lot of situations, that's not specific in God's word. Should I leave the boat alone people now or should I stay here? Should I endure or should I get up and go? And inside, he's thinking, because he's having this battle inside, I feel like God wants me to go. And so, a prayer inside, God help me out if this is what you want. But he says, but I've worked so hard to get here. And if God wants you to get out, he helps him out. And he does. He gets up. In the middle of the night, he's got the strength to get up, walk right out of the hut, and walk down the mountainside. Down he goes. He continues to walk and walk and walk. And he walks for an entire day down to the mountainside, down to a river. And he hits the river. His leg is stiff. It's that terrible feeling after you've really hurt something the next morning. Well, this is a terrible, terrible pain. Everything is shoots when he walks. His leg is just sort of dragging because his muscles have been torn and shredded inside. And he goes and he gets down in that cool river and he sits in it. He's just done. I can't move anymore. And he said, and it stung so bad. Everything stung because it's been being infected. His leg was infected. No medical care. He's out in the middle of the dirt. Whatever they had on the end of that arrow may have had something that caused infection because they are shooting to kill, right? And so they have created these things to kill wherever it hits. We're going to kill you eventually. But he goes down, he sits in the water, and in the water, it does some washing, and it actually, his, he says, my clothes were all stiff from the blood. Just hard, and I was muddy, and there's diarrhea all over me. Just covered in it. Pretty low at this moment in his life. So what's next for him? Well, he gets up and he starts to walk and he starts to walk and he starts to walk and he walks and he walks and he walks for five days. He's had a pretty rough couple of weeks, right? <laughs> pretty rough couple of weeks. And truthfully, the few bits of food that they gave him 
which after they saw him vomit up all of the, the worms, he now, they gave him some smoked fish and a few other things. Some of the kids fed him a little piece of this. And one other guy kept going back to him and feeding him some things. This one guy kind of protected him a little bit. He was a guy with a little cut on the side of his smile, big smile, and he said he was a pigeon-toed guy. He walked out like this, you know. That guy kind of protected him and gave him a little bit of food. Not always, very different, but enough to get him to be able to walk those five days. Finally, he was so starving as he's walking through the jungle. And he thought, this whole thing was a waste. And here is God. And all of a sudden, as he's walking down this riverbed, because that's the only way he knows how to get out anywhere, he has no idea where he is, and he's walked five days. He thinks he's going back into Venezuela, but he ends up walking right out of Venezuela, right into Colombia, through the jungles. He drops down by the riverside and thinks he's just starving and I can't make one more step. He looks over and sees something yellow in the river. There is a bunch of ripe bananas floating in the river. A duck. No duck. <laughs> a bunch of ripe bananas. Not green bananas, but a whole ripe. Now there are bananas down there. Okay, they grow. But what's the chance that a whole bunch of ripe bananas hit that river and float down right where he is? And are ripe. Not, you know how they're bitter when they're like green still. You eat a green banana, well these are all ripe. So he eats and eats bananas. And some of them he can keep down, some he can't. He kind of just keeps eating and eating because he knows his body needs it. Even though what happens is your body rejects it as time goes on because it can't take it. Right? So he just keeps eating and eating and eating. Eventually, some of it sticks. And then he gets back up and he keeps walking. So what happens at that moment? Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Okay, uh, keep going. Verse 32, 33, and 34, please. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that ye have needed all this. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Chapter 6, verse 34. Take their no thought for them morrow. Morrow, yep. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself sufficient unto the day is the evil day. Alright, so here it is. God says, don't you think I know exactly what you need? Don't worry about eating and drinking and the things you need every day. If you are in a place where you are in need, I know exactly what you need. 
Now, what does Bruce need? He needs food. He needs food. He needs medical attention. He needs a lot of things. And he needs clothes. He needs a lot of things, right? He has worked his way out of that jungle. He eats those bananas just at the right moment. He is trying to do God's will, and yet it seems like he is being beat up and beat up and beat up and beat up for it. But oftentimes it takes that battle before the blessings come. The battle first, and oftentimes the blessings come. So out he goes, okay, and he finds his way out, and all of a sudden, he thinks he can't go any further. He stops, and he hears through the woods. It's a weird sound, and he keeps going closer and closer to it. There's a guy using an axe. He found somebody. Now he finds out he's in Colombia. The guy, he and another guy, take him to their home. His wife feeds him. Uh, coffee and corn cakes and all these things, they realize that he's come out of the jungle. Now, nobody's ever come out of the jungle. From where he's saying, five days that way is dangerous territory. And all of the oil people, because the Modalones live in a place where the oil is rich. It actually is so rich in oil that it was coming out of the ground at places. It was seeping out of the ground. Okay? Because there were like artesian oil wells throughout their territory. Crazy place. Now, of course, the oil company finds out about that and wants it. So they send people in and the people get shot and killed every time they send them in. So everyone knows you can't go into the Motolone tribal, tribal area, which is right on the edge of Colombia and Venezuela. Okay? So he goes, he gets taken, he, he gets better through these people, they help him out, they heal him, okay, they give him all the things he needs, he is able, they actually give him some money and a place to stay for a while, and then he realizes God wants me to get to Bogota, okay, a large city called Bogota, that's where I need to go next. So he's got just enough money to buy half a train ticket. He has no other plan except he gets on the train ticket. He's no no more money for food, nothing else, no other way to go. He gets on for half the distance. He's come out of the jungle. He has no paperwork. He has no identification. And he's in the wrong country. He had gone into Venezuela, and the embassy from Venezuela knew he was in Venezuela. Colombia never heard of him before. And they're not necessarily friendly, okay, towards each other necessarily. So they he goes out and they take him and what happens is crazy. The guy comes up to check papers on the train and he says, I don't have any papers. I just came out of the jungle. Oh yeah, right. Where'd you come from? Well, I came from this area. I was five days that direction from that. Where the Motolone people live? I don't think so. Come on with me. We're going to take you in to Bogota for some questioning. Guess what? He got to Bogota, right? <laughs> Just the way. That, and all he could think is, eh, God's got all of this under control. 
He wants me to go to Bogota? There it is. The military guy comes up and says, you're going to Bogota with us, regardless of where your ticket says. Well, that's where he really wanted to head to. It's that. They fed him. They took care of him there. <laughs> and it ended up, they believed his story. All right? But they didn't believe he went through Motolong territory. They believed he was with the Yuko Indians because other people had done it before. But nobody believed he'd been with the Motolong Indians and that he had made it out. But at this point, he doesn't care. He just is waiting for whatever God has for him next. He is healed. He's got some more experience being in the jungle. And he goes back out into that jungle. Those very same people say, well, we have a flight that's going and heading this close to Motolone territory, and we'll get you back up in there. And so they take him right back there after he's healed. Because God knew he needed the bananas, and God knew he needed the food, and God knew he needed the rest, and God knew he needed more supplies. And so he gets gifts and all these different things he's able to, to get, and he flies back into Motolone territory, and he is preparing now. And he puts, he sets himself up in the jungle, right on the crisscross area of five different Motolone pathways. He knows exactly where they are. He spent days getting back in there. He knows exactly where they are. He knows he's near a Motolone home, but he doesn't want to go right in because he thinks he'll be shot again. So he's laying gifts on the trails. And he figures the Motolone will be out here a couple of days. They'll pick up the gifts. They'll know I come in peace. We'll be all set. Waits a little bit, waits a little bit more, got some books he reads, he goes fishing every afternoon, checks the gifts in the morning, does things. A week goes by, two weeks goes by, three weeks goes by, a month goes by, no one's touched anything on the trail. Five weeks goes by, six weeks goes by, two months goes by, he is sleeping in the jungle. There's tigers in the jungle along with many other beasts. And he's still okay with it. He just says, well, God's going to have to do this. And one day, the gifts are gone after two months. And there are arrows stuck right in the trail, face up. That is how the Motolone people say, we are at war with you. What's he going to do? Now, he knows they know he's there. He drops down to his knees and he prays. And through God's voice, a very interesting thing comes to him. Just in one of those little moments, he said, all of a sudden, I had an idea. I pulled the arrows out of the ground, laid them down flat on the ground, because I knew that was not, that meant... No war. And I put more gifts on top. And he came and they were all gone. All the stuff was gone. And then there was a bunch of weird warning signs. They cut roots like it was bleeding. And they rubbed dirt into it. And all these weird things that they did along the trail to try and warn him. And then one day they showed up. And he had learned one Motolone phrase that he could remember from being in there. 
And he had said it. And he screamed it out when they came. Whatever it was, and what it meant was, get out of here, you lazy people. He didn't know what it meant, though. <laughs> and he screamed it and screamed it. And come here, you worthless. Yeah, right, right. You worthless people, right? And they all ran. And he thought, I wrecked the whole thing. I was out here, I did this whole thing, and so he went down, and he was tired of the whole thing, he's sick and tired of fighting for it, he didn't want to do it anymore, he was just tired of fighting this whole thing, he went down, cut himself a raft on the river, he was going to cut, a, and he's chopping down some trees, going to make a raft, lash it together, and he's going to go. Obviously, this has been a waste of time. And there, as he stands up, he realizes he's surrounded by Motolone people. A small group of Motolone people. Arrows drawn. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because that's how they approach. And he looks at one guy and he realizes he's pigeon-toed. And he looks up. He's got a scar on the side of his mouth. Now he is hundreds of miles from where that guy was. He had come into Motolon territory, but not the same exact place. He's hundreds of miles from where that guy was, but that guy that day happened to be there. And that guy, he smiled at the guy because the, the guy had smiled at him before, back when he was shot and laying on the mat with the arrow for days. And he's the guy that brought him the food once in a while and kind of protected him. That guy happened to be there. Didn't happen to be there. Of course, that's God's plan, right? And they ended up taking him back to the village. He smiles and they smile. They can't understand each other. They take him back to the village and they grab his clothes and they feel him and they grab the hair on his arm and they yank it. <laughs> They've never seen hair on arms. They don't have any. Mobile people, smooth skin. No hair. So they're grabbing it and yanking it like, ow, that hurts a lot. But he is finally made the right contact and he is there and it was all God's plan you see God had a plan all the way along one thing to another and he had to be patient each one of these things that seemed like a misstep and a mistake and all these things that didn't go right all of it was right to get him where he needed to go so when we think we don't know where God wants us to go keep your head down keep thinking praying, asking God to give you the direction, he will show it to you eventually. And it may be a long time. It's been quite some time since he first said, I want to go to the Motolone people. And now he's finally there. Next week, catch up. Read chapters, the next three chapters, 13, 14, 15, please. Okay, and we'll work through those.